You're listening to a sermon from the Access Church as we seek to gain godly stability through the book of James. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here. It's really good to be with you. Go ahead and turn to James chapter 5. As we're finishing up our study in this book of James, uh, this is our 17th week um, in this book, our final Sunday. Um, This past September, the elders and I decided to give ourselves uh, to this book, uh, to the book of James, um, feeling like it was very important for us to become more uh, stable um, because it is a book of wisdom trying to glean from this book of wisdom, the Proverbs of the New Testament in many ways, um, trying to glean the wisdom from this book so as to give us some stability um, as we think over the past year, um, you know, coming around in September, uh, feeling uh, as numbers were spiking, as confusion was growing, uh, fear increasing in many, many ways, we felt like it was good to anchor ourselves in, in a book of wisdom. Um, and so not knowing where we were going to end up or whatnot, uh, we're here on uh, March 14th, finishing up this book that started on October 4th of last year. Next Sunday is our Hallelujah Sunday. Uh, it'll be a little bit different uh, at our 9-11. Uh, we're going to be just singing a bunch of hymns together and songs. Looking forward to this time. Our new uh, music director, uh, Dave Hoffman. Uh, who is the father to Max, Alex, and Zach, who led here just now, uh, our beloved Hope. Uh, he's, got, he's got his kids running everywhere around here, um, but not our beloved. Our beloved Hope, not as in what we hold in our heart, maybe, but Hope, his daughter, Hope Hoffman, is who I was referring to as who we hold dearly in our heart. Um, <laughs> you know what I was saying, maybe. Okay, you got me. Okay. Um, and then following Hallelujah Sunday, Um, is uh, acknowledging the uh, Alleluia Sunday, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the Palm Sunday, and then Easter. And then we're jumping, uh, no pun intended, into the book of Jonah. And then we're going to be going into the pages of Mark and giving ourselves to probably a couple years worth of Sundays going through the gospel of Mark. So James and then Old Testament Jonah, and then New Testament Mark. Uh, But right now, before us is the uh, finishing up this book, uh, this letter from James. He's the half-brother of Jesus, and it's the oldest book of the New Testament. It was written around year 42, and then about 20 years later, uh, James died. Uh, He was the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem, and he died right in front of uh, their church building there, their temple. Um, He was clubbed to death, stoned to death, uh, thrown off the top of the temple um, is what church history holds to believing um, how he uh, left this life into the next, preaching the good news of his big brother and savior, Jesus. Um, He wrote this letter to encourage many who were scattering out of fear and persecution um, under Nero and the Roman occupying army there um, in Jerusalem, scattered all throughout the Middle East. And he sent this letter, like a circuit letter, all, over, all around, hoping to encourage them to keep their eyes on Jesus. And here's how he did it. Look at the final, this is how he wrapped up his letter. Look at the final two verses here. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Father, take this word 
Lord, let it land upon our minds with much sincerity and reception, and would it open our hearts to all it is as you work this text into our hearts. Lord, would you work it in our hearts in such a way that it changes the way we talk, think, walk, and touch. Lord, help us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. James chapter 5. He starts out by saying, my brothers. This is his final sentence. My brothers, my, my family, my fellow Christians, my beloved. If anyone among you wonders from the truth, if anyone among you, we call it drifts. If anyone among you drifts, if anyone among you is led astray, if anyone among you is deceived, all that is behind the word wonders. If, if anyone among you Who? Who's he writing to? Who's he writing to? What? Christians? If anyone among you Christians wonders from the truth, if any one of you, no one is above the drift. Anybody. If anyone among you wonders from the truth of the gospel, the truth that's found in Christ, and someone brings him back, helps, helps change what it is that they're seeing and believing, Man, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his driftings, from his wanderings, uh, this, this word is the, uh, like having a misleading belief, uh, and on the, on the same level, it's, um, it refers to a path or a road. So if, if anyone, let him, let him know that anyone brings back a sinner from that path that continues to drift away, the road, the, the, the detour that you don't want to be on, the, the path that's taking you away from where it is that you're hoping to land. If anyone saves someone from their driftings, let them know that whoever brings back a sinner from that path, from that road, he will save, he will keep from harm his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, once again, this is the, the final words of his letter and it just kind of ends abruptly, right? There's not really a, a, a benediction of sorts that's very common. That tradition was added much later in church history. This being the earliest of the books, he just landed, period. These are the final words written that we have on record from the, big bro- the, the younger brother of, of Jesus. But in doing so, in finishing his letter this way, what he does is he, he sort of gives us an insight into why he wrote the letter to begin with. As many of the early church Christians were scattering and scattered, they were afraid and they were fearing, he knew that this drift and departure from the truth is very, very real and very easy. And that many had wandered from the truth of the gospel. And he had heard of this. Many have drifted from the core Christian living that is attached so tightly to what it meant to be a Christian. To be someone who was like Jesus Christ. And he feared that many, many more will be drifting from Jesus in the coming days. And many Christians drift daily. This is a fact. But here what James is addressing as he writes this is he's concerned about the drifting towards blasphemy. Okay? He's concerned with those who are drifting towards total unbelief, rejection of Jesus, refusal, complete refusal to humble themselves before the Lord, uh, persistent in their attempts to gain peace in this life 
and maybe even eternal life through their own efforts, religion, and ingenuity, which is impossible apart from Jesus. Again, this isn't referring to the occasional uh, slipping into sin that we all have through every minute, really, that we're alive. And though the the principles we're going to consider today apply to all sorts of driftings, particularly in the second half of the sermon, uh, big and small. Here, in context, James is chiefly concerned with the much more serious drifting. James says that if a Christian truly drifts, that someone should bring them back, that they must, they must bring them back as the, the spiritual and the spiritually poised are supposed to do, according to Galatians 6, which we're going to get into in just a moment. And so rather in these moments of having a drifter, um, rather than deploying shame, um, guilt, uh, further condemnation, or shooting our wounded, which the church is notorious for, what is the hope here is a gracious uh, and welcoming restoration. This is to be the continuous hope for the drifter. We must be optimistic for all those who are drifting. We're not to to force or demand immediate change necessarily. Remember, the drifter, just like every one of us, is on a trajectory. And we don't know exactly when the Spirit is going to do His work in their hearts. We only want to aid in the Spirit's activity in someone's life and not put stumbling blocks or millstones in the way. And we don't know when God's going to do something. We don't know how God's going to do it. And we can't be impatient. And we got to watch ourselves when we feel uh, frustration towards a drifter. Uh, We can be frustrated over sin for sure, yes. But be slow and careful in transferring that frustration towards the drifter. Take that frustration, which comes from fear, uh, I think uh, a lot of times. Take that frustration to the Lord in prayer and not upon the drifter. And you remain steadfast in truth and hopeful for that return of the drifter, the return, not just to morality, but the return to the Lord. Again, be very optimistic and hopeful for the drifter. And as God does his work in the heart of the drifter through his word and through the love and kindness of those loving the drifter, something wonderful happens. A remarkable restoration takes place in their heart. It's not only that a sinner comes back from from doing bad things, so there's less bad in the world. It's not that a a sinner stops sinning in a certain way, so that there's less sin in the world. That's not the, the hope or the end necessarily, but it's that James says that the drifter themselves is saved from death. So it's not just that sinful activity comes to a, a, a slowing effect, but the drifter themselves are saved from eternal death and many, many, many sins, potential sins, had they continued onward, are now covered. This echoes of 1 John 5 and verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. Again, we're to pray in this way. And then Proverbs 10, 12, which is quoted in 1 Peter 4, 8 in the New Testament, says that love covers all wrongs or that love covers a multitude of sins. Now, cover here is is a word uh, that's used often in the Old Testament which is atone for, 
right? Cover and atone for. It's a very frequently used Old Testament image that's referring to the blood of an animal offering or an animal sacrifice that's covering sin, atoning for sin. Love covers like atoning sacrifice. Love covers a multitude of sin. Now, the opposite of love, of course, is hate. And it's hate and jealousy that often produces chirping towards the drifter, spreading rumors about the drifter, stirring up a mess when somebody drifts. And what Pastor James is saying here is that love is found, and this is what beautiful love looks like in the local church, love is found through bringing back a person as gently as possible, bringing them back to the Lord through careful repentance. There's faith that the drifter's repentance will be accepted by God, their sins will be forgiven, will be covered, and they will live a restored life back in step with godliness and Christ's likeness, right? So that's the text, these concluding two verses that we have as best as I can tell um, after spending much time in prayer and study. Uh, but I want us to consider now some ways that this plays out more practically in, in our lives, uh, lives today. I want to start out by doing something I've never done. I don't, think I've ever, I don't think I've ever defined, though we use these terms often, I've never defined the drift. We talk a lot about fighting the drift, and, and we drift towards this, we drift towards that. But I, I wanted to, to offer this week a, a definition of the drift and a definition of what it means to fight the drift. Okay, and we'll post these online. I don't expect you to write all this stuff down because it's long definition. It's a Puritan definition. Uh, it's a very, very long definition um, with a lot of commas and dashes and so forth. Um, but we'll post these and make these available later. But try to listen. I'll read this twice. The drift. The result of a Christian being deceived, tricked, or secretly enticed by their old way of thinking causing a very subtle turning aside or wandering of their mind and heart where they're drawn away towards a careless forgetfulness of what is true to the point that they unknowingly loosen their grip on the cross as they leave the way in which the Lord their God commanded them to walk and instead give themselves over to doing what is seen as right and good in their own eyes or feelings. The result of a Christian being deceived, tricked, or secretly enticed by their old way of thinking, their flesh, causing a very subtle turning aside or wandering of their mind and heart where they're drawn away towards a careless forgetfulness of what is true to the point where they unknowingly loosen their grip on the cross as they leave the way in which the Lord their God commanded them to walk, which is his way, and instead give themselves over to doing what is seen as right and good in their own eyes and feelings, which is their way. And we know at the very beginning... This is where everything went wrong, is when Adam and Eve did their thing in their way instead of God's thing in God's way. It's the drift. It is our default setting. That's why it's the drift, right? Now, fighting the drift. Fighting the drift is having, having a heightened awareness of the relentless, sinful, deceitful flesh whose default setting is always to get far from God and God's way 
having a heightened awareness of this, the Christian prays for the Holy Spirit's help, strength, and courage as they intentionally seek ways of remembering what is true, as they tighten their grip on the cross and walk after God and hold fast to his word and by faith give themselves over to wholly doing what is right and good in the eyes of God. Fighting the drift is having this heightened awareness of the restlessness of uh, the restlessness, uh, the relentless, sinful, deceitful flesh whose default setting is always to get far from God and God's way. The Christian, knowing this, prays for the Holy Spirit's help, his strength, his courage, as they intentionally seek ways of remembering. Remember what Jesus asked us to do as he shared the Lord's Supper, right? Remember these things. Intentionally seeking ways of remembering what is true. Capital T, true. As they tighten their grip upon the cross, walk after God, hold fast to his word, and it is by faith. It's not by feeling. It's not sometimes what we even want or desire, but by faith, give themselves over to wholly and completely doing what is right and good in the eyes of God, following his way. Those fighting the drift are those who are aware, as John 10, 10 says, they're aware that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his goal with every single person, with every marriage, with every good intention, with every step of godliness and holiness, every pursuit of Christ's likeness. He's there to steal it, kill it, and destroy it, every single one. Those who are fighting the drift are aware of this, and they're also aware of his tenacity that's described in 1 Peter 5, 8, that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's relentless, and those who are fighting the drift know this. He does not stop. Our sinful flesh does not stop. It doesn't stop. There's a continual flowing of the river away from the things that are good. The drift is real. He doesn't stop. Our flesh doesn't quit, but neither does the protection and the promises and presence of God. Neither does his power. Therefore, neither should we. Now, have you ever slipped? Have you on a hike, on a walk, have you ever fallen? What I almost did in the lobby, right? And had somebody lift you up. Has somebody picked you up? Have you ever been really needy and sick and someone care for you? Have you ever drifted and been cared, cared for by someone to help pull you back? Drifting is, is floating, right? It's like what a leaf, a dry leaf does on, a, on water, on a river. It just floats by. All you got to do is nothing and you'll float by. I remember uh, 16 years old, driving my brother and I to school in my 1987, white with blue paint trim, 1987 Ford Ranger XLT, push button four wheel drive thing was awesome. But there was a thing about those mid 80s uh, Ford Rangers. They loved the white line, right? They hated the yellow. And they would always drift. You take your hands off the steering wheel, you could align it, balance it daily. And I'm telling you, you let your hands off, they're just like, mm-mm. Which is better than drifting the other way, for sure, right? 
my brother had some uh, cereal that he had just finished. And you know how there's no way without like getting a napkin or going all into the bowl. There's no way of getting that last little drop of milk out, you know? And uh, no matter what you do, really, um, it's frustrating. But my brother, there's a little insert in the dash there in the old, the, the 87 Ford, where you used to put cassettes. Um, it's how you used to play music. And, and he had this cup and, of, and it was like, I could see it dripping out. Like it was open towards me. I'm driving. I'm like, Brady, get that cup. You know, he, he doesn't, you know, younger brothers don't like to do stuff like that. And so he just let it be. Well, I lunged for it, right? I mean, it was getting ready to get in my dash. You don't want that nasty milk, blech, like the smell, you know, I could just see it crusting and smelling and getting blue. And so I, I, I reach over for it. And as I reach over for it and come back, I look up and there's this concrete culvert, Right. And so I make the best of it and, and try to get out of it as much as possible. We hit it. We go airborne. We, land, we, we topple three mailboxes and a newspaper box and uh, uh, hit a tree. Um, it was, I don't know, probably a six, four-inch caliber tree. It wasn't massive, um, but uh, toppled it, completely took it over, and then slid right before we almost hit a really big tree. And it was in the front yard of somebody's house that had just visited our church the previous Sunday. My dad's the pastor. They never came back again. But I put nice mailboxes back. I sodded the yard like I took care of it. But the drift in that 87 Ranger was real, right? All I had to do was take my attention off of where my attention was supposed to be. And it never stayed like a good Honda Accord does right there. It does what a Ford Ranger does and goes there, okay? All I had to do was nothing and it began to turn. Lifeguards. Lifeguards are aware of the drift. Parents with little children at the beach understand the riptide, the rip currents, the undertow. They're aware of the drift. The DOT and the rumble strips on the side of the road, they understand the drift. Those newer cars who have lane keeping assist feature, it's where you're driving and it nudges you and you're like, whoa, whoa. It's aware of the drift. Bumpers in bowling, right? I love those. My score is so much higher with those. It's fantastic. They're aware of the drift. This past week in our reading in Deuteronomy 13, 4, uh, in our reading plan, it says this. It's a very significant passage. It landed really heavily on my heart. You shall walk. Think, think about these verbs. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you will serve him and hold fast to him. Here we're told that we're to be walking after God, fearing God, keeping God's commandments, doing what is right and good in the sight of God, obeying God's voice, serving God, holding fast to God. So failing here without repentance is drifting. Failing in the Christian life without repentance is drifting. Failing in the Christian life with repentance is thriving. It's living. A picture of what a life looks like that's fighting the drift is described here in Colossians 1.9. From the day that we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's a life that's fighting the drift and fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit, right? That's beautiful. In every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might 
for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is a life that looks like what it looks like to fight the drift. And it's God who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light in his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. It's the knowledge of that final verse that motivates the previous verses. It empowers and informs and motivates the Christian's behavior as a knowledge that we have been delivered, transferred, redeemed, and forgiven. Again, failing in living out these previous verses without repentance is drifting. And we all fail in some way here in many, many times a day. But the healthy, drift-fighting Christian knows that there's to be repentance as often as there is sin. Just like when you spill something, I expect my kids to clean it up. Don't just leave it. I expect spills. I've learned, I didn't expect it when I first became a dad, right? 18 years in, four kids, I expect spills, Right? I expect it all the time. But what I expect is that there's attention given to the spill. We can expect of one another that we will drift in some way, that we will sin in some way. But the healthy Christian knows that there is to be repentance, joyful, life-giving repentance all, as often as we sin. And remember that repentance is turning to Jesus to find what we thought could be found elsewhere. Turning to Jesus and finding what we thought could be found elsewhere. But the drift sells us the lie that we can be happy and satisfied in other things and in doing things our way rather than humbling ourselves and doing God's thing in God's way in obedience towards him. And James says, woe to the one who drifts and has no one to help him back. Do you have someone in your life that if you were to drift, remember, if any one of you, no one's above this, do you have those very special people in your life that you know, and they know you, that if you begin to, when you begin to drift, they're there to help love you back to repentance. Get those people in your life. That's a significant part of why the church exists. Remember Ecclesiastes 4. This was my parents' uh, verse that they used in their wedding ceremony years ago. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will help up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up again. Woe to the one who drifts and has no one to bring him back. Again, if two lie together, they're able to stay warm. But how can one be warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And even a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The power of community, the power of community in the life of the drifter. In, in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Galatians 6, very important word here for us for reconciliation as we help drifters and as we're helped as a drifter. Galatians 6, family, brothers, if anyone is caught, it's important, right? James uses the word anyone as well, right? Any of us. If anyone is caught in any sin or transgression, you who are spiritual, you who haven't been affected in this similar way in the moment, you who are healthy, you who are a, a stronger in this way, 
are more poised, dependent upon the Lord in this way, you should restore him. And then what a qualifier that is missed in much church activity. In a spirit of gentleness. Don't be proud. You keep a watch on yourself as you do this. Lest you too be tempted. As you try to help somebody, you might feel proud. You might begin to feel judgmental. You might even be frustrated and not gentle. You be careful as you do this. Lest you also be tempted and fall into sin as you help someone who is sinning in this way. And bear one another's burdens. Care for one another in this way. This is fulfilling the law of Christ. It's like uh, river rescues. Have you seen those river rescues where they, they typically, nearly, nearly every time there's this rope that spans across and they tether themselves to the rope and they make their way out and they clip on and they try to bring them back. River rescues, in my mind, I was trying to play out this analogy and I feel like the gospel is what spans across uh, the drift, right? The truth, wonders from the truth, right? And then we on, on each side of this rope, it's tethered to one side or the other. It's anchored. And I see that as, as God's word. And I see it as faith in God's word. I see both at play that his word is true. You can anchor to it. But by faith, we're believing that the gospel is what can save us. That Jesus has done what's necessary to redeem us. And, and what Paul is saying in Galatians 6, and what I believe James is getting at in James 5, 19 and 20, is if you try to rescue without being tethered to the word of God and by faith in the gospel, you're going to drown trying to save the drowning. That you're not good enough on your own in a sense. You're not strong enough. You're going to drown too. And that the hope is the gospel and not just behavior modification. The hope is belief in scripture and what God has to say to us and not just us trying to give people steps to figure things out logically, but it has to be anchored in biblical truth. You, that you, you have to give yourself, tether yourself deep into the pages of God's word, being constant in prayer as you seek a drift or rescue, a river rescue. It's like when the disciples showed back up after trying to heal uh, someone who was possessed by a demon and they, they, couldn't, they couldn't heal this particular person and it comes to Jesus and Jesus heals them. They're like, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus said, you've got to be tethered to constant prayer and fasting. You see, not knowing when a river rescue or a drifter rescue is going to be necessary, we must be active in, in anchoring ourselves, building ourselves up in faith in God and relying upon him in prayer and fasting, spending time deep into the pages of the Bible regularly so as to be instant and ready, in season and out of season, ready at any moment to help a drifter and to keep a close watch on ourselves. And then when the opportunity presents itself to help with a drifter rescue, know that screaming at someone who needs rescuing doesn't help. You getting frustrated at a drifter doesn't help. You taking it personally doesn't help. You have to take it spiritually, not personally. Take it spiritually with gentleness, not personally with frustration. Look at uh, Jude, uh, verse 20 and 23. One of the other half-brothers of Jesus wrote this one. He says, but you, beloved family, you Christian, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Notice he didn't say having built yourself up. We're all on a trajectory. We're all growing. 
We're all being building, we're all building ourselves. We're a work in progress, all of us, even the drifter, even you. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Again, we must not take these, these things personally, but spiritually. You've got to see their spiritual need and like Jesus, have compassion on them and not a proud judgmental spirit or attitude or disposition towards them. You trying to force them to change is not going to help. You trying to force change and, and bully and condemn and religiously judge and hate on is not going to help. You're there to show them Jesus. You're there to tell of his goodness. You're there to reveal to them just how kind and great Jesus is. It's the Holy Spirit's job now to bring about conviction. And sometimes that feels like guilt or shame temporarily. But as it has its full effect, it's a beautiful repentance as they respond to the kindness of Jesus. You're there to show them and tell them the truth. You're there to help them remember in my mind, I always think of Hook and the Lost Boys with Robin Williams. You're there to help pull back their, their old face that's just wrinkled with age and, and, and worn with sin. And they're, they're frowning in their, in their shame. And you're there to reveal that youthful gospel smile and say, that's the who you are. That's what you're to be believing. This is the redemptive work at, at, in your heart. Remember. Remember how much you loved Jesus. You remember the, the truth of the gospel when it first landed on your heart. This is loving them back. It's not trying to add a burden. It's helping remove this burden as you present to them Jesus. And we mess all sorts of things up when even out of love and concern, we feel and believe that we're the ones who, who has to bring the necessary changes and bring the, the, the instant improvement to our friends. And sadly, when we do this to our friends, it's, it's probably because this is how we do it to ourselves when we sin and drift. We just tell ourselves to get back in line to kick it in gear and to try harder. That's what we tell ourselves. And so it's natural to tell other people that. When we miss the mark, when we drift, is this how we treat ourselves? I hope not. See, we merely force change, try harder, and look for superficial improvements often without look, lifting our eyes to our Savior, the Savior of our sin, the rescuer of our drifting lifting our eyes to Jesus and seeing his kindness and his goodness and his might. It'll only be some sort of superficial self-improvement if we try to insist on change right now. It's like, here's a little bit of moralism, a couple tablespoons of legalism, half a cup of guilt and shame, and then try harder. Mix it all up. And that's not enough. That's a recipe for growing despair, further sin, and heavier burdens. That's not rescue, that's drowning the drifter. You see, the answer to how we help the drifter is to show them and tell them the truth with care, caution, and mercy. Not carelessly, not with an angst, not with pride, not with giving more law and rules. Rather than getting them to stop something that's bad, 
getting them to start trying to do things better, that's, that's addressing fruit. That's only addressing their sinful behavior. That's only looking at the fruit of their heart. You can stop doing bad things and not have change. Stopping bad things doesn't make anybody good. Stopping bad does not bring about good. Refusing to stop, refusing to do bad things on the outside and even pursuing good things doesn't mean that your heart has been changed. It's like the illustration that I love of like this little third grader, Johnny, who was told by his teacher to sit down. I don't want to sit down. She said, sit down or I'm going to send you to the principal and she's going to call your parents. He sat down real heavy like, you know, thank you, Johnny. Don't thank me. I'm still standing up on the inside. Love that story. Because it's a picture of how we often handle sinful behavior without going to the root of that sinful behavior. You see, we need the heart addressed, not mere actions or words. There, there must be root work and not merely fruit work in our hearts and in the heart of the drifter. And through guilt and shame, and pep talk, we can address some fruit work, and things can look better. But God and only God can address the root work. Fruit work comes and goes, and it's not steady. Root work endures. It lasts. There's true change there. It's deep and meaningful change. It's God-wrought change. It's so easy, though, to be happy with outward change. If, if our children just act right, we're happy, without caring about really what the posture or disposition of their heart is. We just want them to do right. This is not okay. It's not okay with us. We can't stop with just the fruit. We shouldn't even start with just the fruit. We must be praying for and expecting deep inward change. Remember the answer to how we help the drifter is to show them and tell them the truth. And Jesus is the truth. Even what he said in John 14, 6, I'm the way I am the truth. I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Here's the truth about Jesus in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, all things visible and invisible, all things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and all things were created for Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. He, Jesus, is the head of the church, which is his body. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, reconciling all things through making peace through the blood of his cross. And you... Once alienated and hostile in mind, doing all sorts of evil things, evil deeds, Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, the author and speaker of this, became a minister. This is what 
they need to hear and see and have read over them and washed over them. This is what we must stare at if we feel ourselves drifting in some way. It's this. It's Jesus. It's not looking at what the bad that we've done. It's looking at the good that's found in Christ and what he has done for us. It's hearing the good news of the gospel in our ears over and over. This is what we must show. This is what we must tell if we have friends who are drifting in any way. It's this and it's Jesus. Now, Christian, we must pay close and closer attention to the word of God and the drift, lest we float by and be carried away by every wind of doctrine, be lured away by the desires of our sinful flesh and feelings, the desires of our eyes, the pride of our life, and we'll drift away from happiness and health, contentment, and satisfaction. Each of us know people who have been overwhelmed by the drift. Some of us even in this room might be drifting today. The drifters got no zeal. There's no urgency. There's no alertness. There's no care. There's no attention to the things that really matter. There's no longer that careful watchfulness and that joy in their eye about themselves. And they're open for attack. And they're drifting and they're alone. And James says, to the healthy Christians, don't allow them to drift by themselves. And don't cause the current of that drift to run faster and harder by leaving them out there for one more second or adding one more you should to the mix. Don't shoot the wounded while they're down and don't drown the drifting, but help them, have mercy on them, extend grace. You pray and you help. But we know drifters. And you might be one. Where there was once a fondness to the things of God, once an ear towards God, an eye towards Jesus, and now there's little to no focused listening. There's no fixing of our eyes upon Jesus. The once beaten and cleared down path to the cross is now grown over. Drift. Perhaps the drifter feels as if they've been steady and they've stayed where they last let off. And they know that they've not certainly gained ground towards the cross, but they don't feel like they've drifted per se. But to not be making one's way towards the cross is to drift quickly from it. It's subtle and it's slow and the drift is dangerous and it's fast. There is no standing still for any of us. We're either making our way daily towards Jesus or we're drifting. We're not in a pond. We're in a river, an ever-flowing river. And the constant flow is always away from God, away from God's way, drifting away from the truth, away from how we should be thinking about this life, away from God's word, further away from contentment and peace. This is why we must be daily in, in the word, constant in prayer, focused on Jesus and upon the cross where he died for us. We must fix our eyes on the empty tomb, reminding ourselves perpetually of the hope that we have in God. And when we're not focused on these things, we drift. And the drift is deadly. That's what James is telling us. It's why sometimes I refer to it as the damn drift. The hope of the drifter, and for you and for me, is found in Hebrews 2.1. It says we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. 
We must pay closer attention to Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ closer today than we did yesterday, paying closer attention tomorrow than we have today. When's the last time you've had this urgency to pay closer attention? Then you're drifting and you don't know it because it's subtle. We've got to fix our eyes firmly upon what God has done for us in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is how we fight the drift. We fight the drift by drawing our identity, our mission, our purpose, our life, our satisfaction, our contentment, and our peace from God. Not through our performance, not through our godliness, not through our work ethic, not through our income, not through our marital status, not through the performance of our children. None of these things will work. That's throwing Savior weight on things that will crush them and disappoint you every time. You place your identity and draw your identity. You draw your satisfaction from God through his finished work through Jesus, rehearsing the truths of the gospel to yourselves and to our hearts and to others over and over and over again. It's reminding ourselves, paying closer attention to the things that we've already heard. It's helping us remember like Psalm 90 verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. And praying the opposite of this text is, Lord, help me not be satisfied in the morning by anything else other than you and your kindness, so that I might rejoice and be glad all of my days. We fight the drift as Christians by being satisfied in the morning with the love of God spoken to us in and through Jesus Christ and all that he's accomplished for us. It's in this that we're to rejoice and be happy and glad all of our life. My hope is that this morning will be a call to every single one of us, every one of us in this room. I know who you are. I'm looking at you. I want this to be a call for every single one of us to look to Jesus more clearly and closely today, to consider him once more, to listen to him closely, to listen to him carefully. And it's not a heavy thing to do if you're the drifter, this is not a heavy thing to do. It's light and it's easy. It's as easy as listening and giving your heart over to hearing his word. It's as light as looking, looking at Jesus and all that he's done for you. And it's as effortless as collapsing in his direction. He will catch you with his compassion and his care. He'll uphold you with his righteous right arm. He'll comfort you with his love. He'll heal you through his wounds. He'll care for you through his stripes and he'll forgive you through his sacrifice. But if you refuse this offer, if you continue in your way, you will not escape. You will die, you will perish, and you'll live forever in a godless eternity called hell. And James tells us this. It's an eternal death. So wake up. Please wake up. Healthy, true Christians don't drift for long. They don't. Be aggressive in fighting the drift. And be in a community with those who are fighting the drift and who can help you when you drift and be careful as you help the drifter. So Christian, if you're drifting today, I ask that you respond to the Lord's very simple invitation to turn your eyes upon Jesus and call out to him for help. It's like Simon Peter on the water. Remember, he walked out towards Jesus. Don't lose focus. Set your eyes upon Jesus. Matthew 14, when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. 
He took his eyes off of Jesus and he started looking at the storm. He started looking at the circumstances around his life and not Jesus. And he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately, he immediately reached out his hand. He didn't look at him and said, why did you take your eyes off me, Peter? Answer that first and then I'll save you. You answer me real quick. Let me know. Immediately he reaches out and takes his hand and took hold of him. Friend, this is what we need. Call out to him for rescue and for mercy. Ask God to get a hold of you. Ask God to take hold of you as he did Peter, rescuing you from distraction of being focused on so many other things. Those who aren't Christians yet, those who are right now drifting towards a godless and hopeless eternity. Ask God for faith and belief to care about this stuff. Ask him to save you. And I ask that you trust us to guide you towards God here at the Axis Church. I promise you, we will be gracious and merciful and hopeful for you. Call out to God for eyes to see all this and for a heart to experience him daily. A heart that's been given life and forgiveness. Ask him for this change. As we approach the Lord's table this morning together, I want, you to be I want you to be reminded of what Jesus told us to do in this very moment of the Lord's table. Remember, Jesus took bread and he took wine in the upper room with his disciples and he gave it to them. And he said to them, remember. He said, each time that you take this meal, remember. This goes right in line with what we found in Hebrews 2.1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention. We've got to remember what we have heard already, lest we drift away from it. Even now, as we approach the Lord's table, remember. Christian, pay much closer attention to this, to what this symbolizes as we approach the Lord's table together this morning. Remember, lift your eyes towards Jesus in the cross. Call out to him in prayer. So as we come and take the, the blood and body of Jesus this morning, intentionally remind yourself of Jesus Christ and his righteousness that's given to us, that's made ours through faith in his work. We've got juice and we've got wine and we've got bread available for you to take and dip through our servers here up front. We also have sealed communion cups with the wafer on top back at the back table there as well as a self-serve station in the back if you prefer that. But these are the gifts of God for the people of God. And we proclaim the mystery of faith that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So Christian, when you're ready, please come and take remembering and paying careful attention to the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this very time of remembering and paying careful attention to the Lord Jesus Christ and his work in this special time of communion. And may he remain with us always. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. You're listening to a sermon from the Access Church as we seek to gain godly stability through the book of James.